Zeezrom is floored by this message. This is when cunning meets clarity, when craft meets conviction, when relativism bumps up against absolute truth. This is what led people who listened to Jesus to say, he speaks as one having authority and not as the scribes. This is different from anything I've heard before. And that's Alma's cue to jump right in and give second witness to the kind of astonishing things that Amulek has just taught. So in chapter 12, verse 1, Alma, seeing that the words of Amulek had silenced Zeezrom, silencing a lawyer who speaks for a living. That's a feat. He beheld that Amulek had caught him in his lying and deceiving to destroy him. Seeing he began to tremble under a consciousness of his guilt, Alma opened his mouth and began to speak unto him. He sees Zeezrom is wavering on the ropes, and so Alma goes for the kill, the kill of the natural man inside of Zeezrom. He begins to establish the words of Amulek, to explain things beyond, or to unfold the scriptures beyond that which Amulek had done. This is what mission companionships are for. And he made sure in verse 2 that he spoke loud enough that even though his message seemed to be intended for Zeezrom, it was heard by all the people round about, just as Alma and Amulek would have wanted. In verses 3 through 6, Alma further accuses Zeezrom of lying and craftiness, of lying not only to man, but to God as well, of very subtly, according to the subtlety of the devil, trying to trick the people into setting themselves against Alma and Amulek, of lining up on the wrong side of these issues. I love in verse 5 where he says, this was a plan of thine adversary. Thine adversary. I love this. Alma sees, Zeezrom, you're on the wrong side. And there's no loyalty on your side of things. Satan is your boss here, but he's your adversary as much as he's mine. Come to our side of the field and you'll see this much more clearly. That old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, do you see how Alma is trying to reach out to Zeezrom? He's your enemy just like he's ours. That makes us friends. Remember he said that earlier? My brethren, because you are my brethren, and you ought to be beloved. I'm trying to make friends out of you by helping us both see the common adversary that we both share. He's trying to destroy you, even as he's using you to try to destroy us and everyone else. He's been exercising his power in thee. And that message again isn't just loud enough so that everyone can hear. It's meant for them just as much as it is for Zeezrom. I would that you should remember that what I say unto thee, I say unto all. Verse 6, this was a snare of the adversary laid to catch this people, to bring them into subjection unto him, so he could encircle you about with his chains, those chains of hell, those chains of ignorance that we'll see later in this chapter chaining them down to everlasting destruction according to the power of his captivity. Well, if it's a snare, don't snares need bait? Zeezrom was the bait for the people. If Satan could use him to convince others to follow, and what was the bait for Zeezrom? Money. This love of filthy lucre that would get him to relativize all law, eliminate the existence of a supreme law giver, and then just 
drum up as much business as he could by fomenting dispute and contention among the people. This all seems to be hitting home too. Verse 7, Alma had spoken these words and Zeezrom began to tremble more exceedingly, for he was convinced more and more of the power of God. He was also convinced that Alma and Amulek had a knowledge of him. He was convinced they knew the thoughts and intents of his heart. Amulek had proven that. For power was given unto them that they might know of these things according to the spirit of prophecy. Well, to the degree that Alma and Amulek did know the thoughts and intents of Zeezrom's heart, they would have also known, as we're about to, that that heart was changing. All throughout today's lesson, we're seeing examples of heart juxtaposed with other heart. The hard and the soft. Those that receive much and those that receive little. Well, Zeezrom's heart was beginning to change. You can tell in verse 8, because he began to inquire of them. Well, hasn't he been doing that for the last half chapter? Most of the question marks in chapter 11 belong to Zeezrom. He'd been inquiring of them for quite some time. But now he's doing it differently. He's doing it diligently. I think he was doing that before also, but for a different reason. Then it was to trap, to ensnare Amulek in his words. Now he's inquiring diligently that he might know more concerning the kingdom of God. You see that beautiful difference? This is no longer questions in avoidance of answers. This is questions in search of truth. When you can see that switch in people, You see, I've often ended conversations with anti-Mormons by asking them this. Are you asking questions because you want answers? Or are you asking questions because you want me to have questions? If yours is the first, we could do this all day. I love answering those kinds of questions. If it's the second, then we're done. Because I don't have those questions. I've resolved them in my mind. You don't want the answers. You're ducking and dodging every time they're about to come. But now he's open to them. His heart is beginning to soften. He asks Alma, what does this mean which Amulek hath spoken concerning the resurrection of the dead? What is all that? That all shall rise from the dead, both the just and the unjust. And then he got the message and are brought to stand before God to be judged according to their works. Wait, wait, wait. Amulek made it abundantly clear that resurrection is what guarantees judgment. And I've been trying to avoid the possibility of judgment all along. In fact, even in his mortal work, once a judge passes judgment, isn't that the end of the money-making opportunity for the lawyers, at least in that particular case? Judgment's the last thing they want. They just want controversy. Well, in this case, even more so. Judgment is the last thing we want. So I'm starting to worry about this talk of resurrection that he brought up. So Alma picks up where his companion left off. Verse 9, his answer begins in an interesting way. It is given unto many to know the mysteries of God. Nevertheless, they are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart, only according to the portion of his word which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. I used to have a blast with that verse when I taught at the MTC. And missionaries would ask either a question that was so speculative that there was no answer or a question that was so difficult that I had no idea what the answer was. When they'd ask me a question like that, I'd try to keep a straight face and say, oh, 
That's simple. It's right there in the scriptures. And they're like, what? This question has an answer in the scriptures? I'm like, of course. Alma 12, verse 9. And they'd go and they'd read that and they'd look at me and they're like, wait, what? Many know the mysteries of God, but they can only give what people are prepared for. And then again, poker face, I'd say, Elder, it's an incredible question. And of course I have the answer to that. Some of us have had the mysteries of God revealed to us, but I'm just not sure if you're yet ready for it. And there'd be this awkward silence like, what? And then I couldn't keep my face straight. I just laugh. I'm like, I have no idea the answer to that question. But that is not what Alma is doing. He's not sharing verse 9 as an escape hatch for a question that he can't answer. He's letting Zeezrom do some of the same thing that he had to do himself, Alma, earlier on in life, to gauge the softness or hardness of his own heart. Why am I asking? Am I prepared to receive How is God supposed to respond to me? And will I respond to his response with heed and diligence? Am I the type who's ready to know some of these mysteries of God, knowing I will be held accountable for them? Alma then proceeds with these two verses, 10 and 11, which have defined our conversation thus far. The hardened heart receives the lesser portion until they know nothing. The softened heart receives the greater portion until they know everything. We are moving in either direction of that spectrum towards fruitfulness or towards wayside soil where nothing can grow because nothing ever germinates. Those are the chains of hell that the adversary has been forging spiritual ignorance, and the chains that Alma and Amulek and all the holy prophets before them have been trying to destroy as they have preached the word of God that sets us free. So with that as a preface, do you need to understand this before I start answering your question. Now that I think you're asking it honestly, before I pick up where Amulek left off and explain resurrection and judgment, I need you to gauge the quality of your heart and how much of this are you prepared to receive. Verse 12, Amulek hath spoken plainly concerning death and being raised from this mortality to a state of immortality, there's the resurrection half, and being brought before the bar of God to be judged according to our works. That's the real crux of his message, the judgment part. Verse 13, Alma again brings it back to the heart. If our hearts have been hardened, yea, if we have hardened our hearts against the word to the point that it's not, it doesn't have any place in us, that it can't be found in us, then will our state be awful, for then we shall be condemned. Condemned by what? 14, our words will condemn us, our works will condemn us, our thoughts will condemn us. And in that awful state, we shall not dare to look up to our God. We would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us, to hide us from his presence. These words are coming from Alma the Younger, who knows these feelings personally and profoundly. Later in Alma, when he explains his experience, his conversion experience to his son Helaman, he will use similar words, saying things like, I wanted to cease to exist. That's even worse than wanting to crawl under a mountain somewhere. Either way, hiding from God is not an option 
That's why the resurrection is bad news for the unrepentant. It forces you to face your flaws. Of course the criminal wants to avoid his day in court. He knows he's guilty. Of course they want to hide from God's presence. It will not be a pleasant experience being brought back to life to be with him. Verse 15, that hope of hiding cannot be. We must come forth and stand before him. Resurrection guarantees it. And to stand before him in his glory, his power, his might, his majesty, his dominion. That's the perfect piper that we are being called upon to pay. We will acknowledge to our everlasting shame that all his judgments are just. That's Jacob again in 2 Nephi 9. My transgressions are mine. I wouldn't give them away even when Jesus asked for them. We'll acknowledge that he is just in all his works. And then this key, and that he is merciful unto the children of men. That he called and commanded that he invited and entreated, that he sent messenger after messenger to cry repentance, to speak it softly with promises of mercy, to thunder it harshly with threats of death and damnation, that he tried everything he could think of to help us change. That is his mercy. We'll know that he has all power to save every man that believeth on his name and bringeth forth fruit meet for repentance. Why do you think we are crying repentance among you? Because then in verse 16, then there comes a death, a real death, a scarier death, a second death, which is a spiritual death. Samuel the Lamanite will teach this principle as well, that there are two spiritual deaths. Now there was a first spiritual death and a first physical death. Both of those were brought on by the fall of Adam and Eve. Both deaths involve a separation of sorts. Physical death being the separation of body from spirit and spiritual death being the separation of humanity from God. Well, if both of those deaths are on Adam and Eve, then it would not be just of a just God to condemn us all for that. And so there has to be an unconditional way of overcoming both deaths. We usually talk about only the resurrection being an unconditional redemption. But God guarantees all humanity an unconditional release from both deaths, at least a first time. Through resurrection, all humanity overcomes physical death. Remember, Amulek taught that clearly. Bond-free, male-female, righteous-wicked. John describes the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Nobody's not living again. But secondly, if resurrection overcomes physical death for all, judgment overcomes spiritual death for all because judgment takes place in the presence of God. If we were separated from his presence through the fall, it's judgment that brings us back into his presence. And it's almost like in that moment, the father can turn to Adam and Eve and say, the two deaths that you brought into the world have now been made up for. All of your posterity lives again and is in my presence. You two are now off the hook. You are free to leave the witness stand. But by vacating the witness stand themselves, they've now made room for all of the rest of us, their posterity. 
And now the Lord can look at each of us and say, okay, now that Adam and Eve are off the hook, now that death has no sting and the grave has no victory, and you're in my presence, the question now is, can you stay? Have you repented of your sins so that my mercy and justice can claim you as my own? Are you mine? Do you know me? Have you let me know you? If so, then stay. You're here. You've already overcome that first spiritual death and no need to suffer a second. On the other hand, it's not Adam's transgression anymore. It's now responsibility for our own sins. And if we have not repented of them, then comes the second spiritual death where the Father has to look at us and we choose to leave him, separating ourselves this time. It's then that whosoever dieth in his sins, his own sins now, as to a temporal death shall also die a spiritual death. Yea, he shall die as to things pertaining unto righteousness. Now, once the unrepentant have suffered this second spiritual death, having been brought back into God's presence for judgment and now having to leave because of their own unrighteousness, Verse 17, then is the time when their torments shall be as a lake of fire and brimstone, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. Remember, Joseph Smith described that as the feelings of regret that we have. And then is the time that they shall be chained down. That word chained again. Tie that back into verse 11, where it talks about the chains of hell, right? Those chains being defined there as spiritual ignorance, knowing nothing concerning the mysteries of God. In this case, the mystery of how can the wicked become righteous? How can the wicked be redeemed? How can we avoid the second spiritual death? Verse 18, those thus chained shall be as though there had been no redemption made, as if Jesus hadn't come to set the captives free. For they cannot be redeemed according to God's justice, and they cannot die, seeing there is no more corruption. You see they're caught between this rock and a hard place? The rock being God's justice and the hard place being the grave. God's justice is what demands that second spiritual death. And it's that second spiritual death that keeps us out of God's presence. Keeps us from enjoying an eternal life of joy and happiness with our Father in heaven. But meanwhile, our resurrection, the promise of overcoming physical death, that keeps us from just ceasing to exist. Which is what Alma the Younger had hoped for before he learned that repentance was a way out. I just think it's interesting, this middle ground that he's describing there in verse 18. That on the one hand, you can't be with God, but on the other hand, you can't cease to be. You live resurrection, but you live outside of his presence. No redemption. You see how that unconditional resurrection makes the conditions of salvation all the more essential? We can't cease to be. Not only can we not deny the existence of a supreme being, like Zeezrom was hoping, but we can't deny our own eternal existence either. The resurrection forces this issue. The resurrection, again, such good news for the righteous, because we'll be able to remain in that state of joy and happiness eternally. But for the unrepentant to remain in that state of regret, again, this is paradise and prison writ large, extended eternally. 
where the righteous are in paradise because they know that they will be freed. They understand there is a redemption. Whereas those in prison live as if there were none. They are ignorant, willfully ignorant of the freedom that Jesus Christ offers. And it's the resurrection that really forces us to reckon with that. No wonder the people's reaction in verse 19 is greater astonishment than ever before. Seems like with each round of this tag team missionary discussion, the astonishment level ratchets up higher and higher and higher. It's beginning to dawn on them what this means. How the good news of the resurrection can be bad news if we have not repented of our sins. Well, there's one man here, verse 20, his name is Antiona. He's one of the chief rulers among them, who has an interesting question. He recognized Amulek's and then Alma's focus on the resurrection and asks, Well, what is this that thou hast said that man should rise from the dead and be changed from this mortal to an immortal state? That the soul can never die. He grabs a hold of that phrase and is wondering about it because of something he remembers from the scriptures. Nice to know that not everyone in Ammonihah was completely ignorant of the word of God. Verse 21, here's his question. What does the scripture mean? which saith that God placed cherubim and a flaming sword on the east of the Garden of Eden, lest our first parents should enter and partake of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Thus we see that there was no possible chance that they should live forever. So he's perceiving a contradiction. Now I don't know the state of Antiona's heart. This seems to be an honest question prompted by his own astonishment over what he's been taught. It doesn't seem to be the kind of creating of contradictions that Zeezrom and his fellow lawyers were guilty of. But he's wondering, this promise of an immortal state that Amulek and Alma have been talking about, compared to this promise that there could be no living forever based on the story in Genesis. So you say that we're going to live forever. The scriptures say that that's not possible. Something's got to give. Verse 22, Alma's response is incredible. He says, this is the thing which I was about to explain. Do you notice how often that happened in the mission field? Where you'd be teaching some principle, and then the investigator would have a question that was a better segue into the next principle you were planning to teach than anything you possibly could have come up with yourself. It'd be like teaching the principle about prophets, and at the end they say, well, yeah, but if prophets are so important, why doesn't God call them today? And you just sit back and go, I'm so glad you asked. That's the thing which I was about to explain. Or you teach the Joseph Smith story, after which the investigator asks, but how do you know that Joseph Smith's a prophet? And you smile and say, that was the thing which I was about to explain. Or you teach, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the first principles and ordinances that help us return to our Father in heaven. And they wisely ask, but what about those who never had a chance to hear these things? And again, you smile. This is the thing which I was about to explain. The plan of salvation answers those kinds of questions. And the way that Alma answers his is incredible. He picks up right where Antiona left off. Now we see that Adam did fall by the partaking of the forbidden fruit. Good call. Glad you took us right back to the story of the fall. That's where we need to begin. It's the fall that brings in the first spiritual death along with the temporal death. It's the fall that Jesus Christ came to overcome. It's the redemption that reverses those two deaths. And it all happened, in verse 22, according to the word of God. This was part of the plan. Thus we see that by his fall, all mankind became a lost and fallen people. And now behold, I say unto you, 
if it had been possible for Adam to have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life at that time. So this is to your question, Antiona. What God said about, we don't want him to live forever, that was a specific statement regarding that specific moment. If Adam and Eve go and partake of the fruit of the tree of life, right on the heels of having just partaken of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil, then everything's ruined. As Alma explains in 23, there would have been no death. We would have gone straight from immortality before the fall to immortality after the fall. By the way, you want a fun vocabulary word. Before the fall, the technical word is prelapsarian. And after the fall, it's postlapsarian. So that, here's the problem. There has to be death. There has to be something in between to separate prelapsarian immortality from postlapsarian immortality. According to 23, that would have made the word of God void because he'd said, if thou shalt eat, thou shalt surely die. Again, the justice of God demands that the punishment follow the crime. That choice is always followed by consequence. Now, as I spent time this week trying to wrap my own brain around this concept, what exactly is Alma trying to do here? I realized that once it clicks in our head, it makes sense, but it's kind of complicated to get there. Now, we're going to need to unpack verse 23, because this gap between prelapsarian and postlapsarian immortality is key. There has to be this separation, this distinction between the immortality Adam and Eve had before and the immortality that God promises all of us after. This is a difference in kind, even though we could call both of them immortality. And without death, it's just kind of the one bleeds seamlessly into the other. There had to be death. There needed to be some kind of time. In fact, it's death that gives the life that precedes it meaning and purpose and motivation to do something with the time that we have. If there's no deadline, no death line, then we got all the time in the world. In fact, there's no time at all to worry about. Now, all of a sudden, the time that we have starts to count. It all comes back to that phrase in verse 23, at that time. I think that's the essential phrase that Alma is focused on. If Adam had partaken of the fruit of the tree of life, if his post-lapsarian immortality had begun at that time, then there's no death and therefore no space, no time to prepare and repent. So the problem is not living forever. Remember, that was Antiona's concern. It's like, wait a minute, this resurrection talk, you're talking about living forever? Story of the fall says it was impossible to live forever. God made sure they wouldn't live forever. Cherubim and the flaming sword, right? This none shall pass kind of a mentality. God is keeping us from eternal life. Well, Antione is only half right. He was keeping them from eternal life at that time. Eternal life was the ultimate goal. It's always been God's ultimate goal. But not that way. Not that time. Because there had been no time. Time had just popped into existence, basically, at the time they partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So to allow life to have a meaning, to bring time into existence, and give meaning to mortal temporal life, there needed to be death as well. We need to have death, and we need to have a way to overcome death. Here's the bad news. Here's the good news. Fall, resurrection. So there's got to be death, but the death can't be eternal. There has to be something to break up these immortalities, but there has to be something to end that break. 
and bring real immortality and eternal life into existence. So here's the issue, as I've tried to make sense of it. The problem is either living eternally with no death or dying eternally with no promise of life. So there had to be both death, that's the deadline, the death line, and life afterwards, a consequence for what we did with the time that death just made meaningful, the, the life that death ended. I, I hope this is making sense. Again, there had to be death, a deadline, and life afterwards, a consequence. So there had to be both mortal life and immortal life to follow it. Death separates the two and gives meaning to both. So often it's the specter of death that makes us appreciate the life that we have. We sometimes lament the fact that young people can be so reckless with their own lives. Well, death is such a distant thing, it doesn't even cross their minds. So it's the threat, the promise of death that gives meaning to this life. And it's how we use this life that determines what our eventual eternal life will look like. You remember how Lehi taught this in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 22? He said, if Adam had not transgressed, he would not have fallen, but he would have remained in the Garden of Eden. And all things which were created must have remained in the same state in which they were after they were created. And they must have remained forever and had no end. In some ways, he's asking, what's the point of the creation if there is no fall? What's the point of the life that they were living in Eden, innocent and unprogressive as it was, if there's no death to force a change into things? What Lehi is describing is there had to be a fall and an atonement. There had to be a death and a resurrection. Just like it's the fall that makes the atonement meaningful. Remember President Benson's great quote? We don't care about food until we've felt hunger. We don't sense the importance of the atonement until we've grappled with the fall. It's the fall that gives meaning to the atonement. It's death that gives meaning to the resurrection. Now the plan then was to avoid both perpetual life and perpetual death. By combining the two and thus making both of them temporary. You following me? Let me say that again. The plan was to avoid both perpetual life, that would have been that innocent, unchanging, ungrowing, unprogressing life that Adam and Eve lived before the fall, and perpetual death, which would have been the result if there had been fall and no atonement, no resurrection. So how do you avoid both perpetual life and perpetual death? You force the two together. Interesting contrary here, life and death. By ending life with death, but also ending death with life. Now both of those preliminary stages are, have an end date. And with a finish line, now the race means something. Another way to look at that is this perpetual life before the fall, label it innocence. The perpetual death after the fall, label that guilt. Well, God's ultimate goal for us was not mere innocence in Eden. It was holiness through Gethsemane. But like often happens in mountain climbing, when you get to the top of the rise that you saw from the beginning, you realize from that vantage point, oh, there is a higher mountain off in the distance. This was just a foothill. But I can't go straight from here up to the next. I have to pass through the intervening valley to be able to get onto the real mountain. This is creation, fall, 
atonement, the pillars of eternity. Eden was innocence. The fall was guilt. But the atonement brings in holiness, which is a whole other level beyond. It's so much higher than the elevation of Eden. This is what Elder and Sister Hafen recently wrote about with simplicity, complexity, return to simplicity, but a more sophisticated simplicity than whatever we had before. Because what happens on that atonement ascent is justification. That's what brings you back to the elevation of Eden. And then sanctification. And it's coming to know Christ through the justification process that gets us to trust in him as he works out the more difficult, mighty change of heart, which is the sanctification process. You see, it's that ascent that's the point of this whole thing. It's why creation occurred. It's why the fall was part of the plan, to put us on a path that would lead to holiness. You can't jump straight from innocence to eternal life. You have to understand the process of justification and sanctification to become like our Father in heaven. In a slightly different way, it's Christ's condescension, his lowering himself, which then prepares himself for the exaltation that is uniquely his. In our case, it's not just a kind condescension. It is a collapse into sin. For all have sinned and come short, fallen short of the glory of God, Romans. But from that moment, we can now turn to the Savior and he justifies and sanctifies us to make us into someone more like him. It's death, fall, that wakes us up to that reality. From the elevation of Eden, we think we're doing pretty well. I'm innocent, after all. It's not until our guilt wakes us up for our need for the Savior, which was always there, even back in Eden. And with that awakened need, again, this is what King Benjamin taught so powerfully. Go back and watch those videos to see that now that we're down and recognize our need for him, we can turn to him and he'll not only pull us out of the pit that we've dug for ourselves, but with the renewed trust in the rope that he's lowered and more importantly, the hand that's holding the other end, now we can go mountain climbing which is the purpose of those ropes all along. All of that learning process, that waking ourselves up to our need for Christ, happens because death entered the world. But this is a long lesson. It can't just be go, you got it? Okay, good, now we're in. No, it's sit with this. Set up camp east of Eden, realizing that you're in this for the long haul, that this is a lesson that cannot be fast-forwarded through. Mighty changes, after all, take a lot of time to stick. You see, if all we have is life in Eden, if we're at that innocence stage, no death, then there's also no repentance. We don't see a need to. But if we're down here east of Eden in the fall and don't know there's anything beyond, then again there's no repentance because we don't see that we can. So again, what does this gap do? What fills the gap that death forces into us, this time, this space? It's filled with grace because it's filled with our time to repent and learn to become like God. Without the front end, there's no need to repent. And without the back end, there's no chance to repent. By separating those two immortalities with death and resurrection, by opening that space between our two immortalities. That gap is now mortality, a fall and a promised 
resurrection, all of a sudden the mortality that enters in, that opens up in the middle, that's meaningful. And it is filled with the need and the chance to repent. It is filled with God's grace. This is now our learning time. Verse 24 makes that clear. We see that death comes upon mankind. Yea, the death which has been spoken of by Amulek, which is the temporal death. Nevertheless, there was a space granted unto man in which he might repent. This is back to Antiona's question. If they were immediately able to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, then boom, that space is done. There was no space. No wonder cherubim and the flaming sword had to be there. It wasn't just none shall pass. It was you can't graduate early. You haven't learned anything yet. Change takes time. So take the time to change. There was space granted unto man in which he might repent. And what does that make of life then? What does it fill that gap with? What is mortality? Therefore, this life became a probationary state. Now, I've got a bone to pick with Alma about his choice of vocabulary words here. Probationary state. There's a certain connotation there when probation. Probar in Spanish means to prove or to test. And that's the same root here. We're proving ourselves in this life. Now, that's not a problem, but it's interesting that so often when we talk, especially with children and youth, what is the purpose of life? And without hesitation, they'll say, oh, it's twofold, to get a body and to be tested. And that's not a bad answer, right? I mean, physical death, spiritual death, those are the two parts. Resurrection, redemption, it's all there. Get a body, one that's going to die and be resurrected, and be tested, fall atonement. So it's a, it's a fine answer. Yes, we come to earth to gain a body and to be tested. But the test, is that really it? Is that why we came, was just to take a test? Think about your own experience in school. Did you go to school to be tested? Is that what you signed up for? Give me a bunch of exams. I've got my sharpened number two pencil already. No, I went to school to learn. We went to school to grow, to progress, to become something. Now, tests were a part of that, right? But tests weren't the purpose. It wasn't the ends, it was a means to help gauge how are we doing at progressing towards that end, right? That's the point of testing, simply to help us measure our learning. See where we still need some more opportunities to learn, some more chance to grow. We didn't come to earth to be tested. We came to earth to learn, to learn of our total, complete need of Jesus Christ, our reliance on him to learn to reconcile our will to his. That explains all the things that he's asking us to do. That's Nephi. That's King Benjamin. That's Abinadi. That's the message of Jesus Christ, especially as taught in the Book of Mormon. So I worry a little about the word probationary state because it makes it seem like God is this probation officer that's hiding out in some unmarked car just watching us condemned criminals all, but on probation. And he's just there waiting to see if we slip so that he can throw us back into the prison that we should have been in all along. Is that life? Are we on probation? Are we here to be tested to see if we deserve salvation, exaltation, eternal life? Or are we here to learn so that we can be prepared for it when God generously gives us what we don't deserve, what we've never deserved. It seems like Alma catches himself with this. 
Because right on the heels of saying this life became a probationary state, he corrects himself, or at least clarifies himself, by saying a time to prepare to meet God. A time to prepare for that endless state which has been spoken of by us, which is after the resurrection of the dead. Isn't that what school was supposed to be for? A time to prepare us for a long life of productivity in the work field? To prepare us to make a contribution to society? I've learned, I've grown, I've become something, and now I'm ready to put it to use. It's not a matter of, did you pass that test? Did you get credit in the course? Did you check off all of the boxes so that you can get a piece of paper saying that you've graduated? And so often, all that we've done in college, all the boxes we've checked and the tests we've taken have nothing to do with the life that we're leading afterwards. That's tragic. What a, what a sad use of the years of study that we've endured and enjoyed in college. Life isn't probation. Life is preparation. He's not looking for us to fall so he can keep us out of his presence. He's looking for ways to help get us up to speed so that we can receive the gift he's giving us. You see, in 25, if it hadn't been for the plan of redemption, this was the whole plan, which was laid from the foundation of the world. Creation, fall, atonement were all put in place before they actually occurred. This was the plan. There would be this gap, this mortal time, with death ending prelapsarian immortality and the resurrection beginning post-lapsarian immortality. And this time, this space that God grants us was meant to help us prepare. That was the plan of redemption laid from the foundation of the world. Without that plan, there could have been no resurrection of the dead, but there was a plan. It brought to pass the resurrection of the dead. 26 beautifully says, Now behold, if it were possible that our first parents could have gone forth and partaken of the tree of life, so this is to your point exactly, Antiona. Then they would have been forever miserable, having no preparatory state. And thus the plan of redemption would have been frustrated, and the word of God would have been void, taking none effect. It would have defeated the purpose of coming in the first place. In some ways, that would have been the fulfillment of Satan's plan from the beginning. No chance to prepare, to learn. You're just back. There's no space to repent, to fall and understand atonement. There's no time to grow. It's just passing out diplomas. It's making sure that everybody gets every box checked, that it's, that it's all guaranteed. And you come back no different. See, there's, in Satan's plan, there was no difference between immortality in God's presence pre-mortally and immortality in God's presence post-mortally, because there's no mortality really, at least no purpose of it. No time to learn to grow, to fall, to get back up. It's just tests with the answers all filled out. Didn't have to learn a thing. I mean, sure, nobody gets sent back to prison by their probation officer, but there's no preparation officer. And that's what Jesus came to be. Christ didn't come to look for infractions to throw us back into prison. He looked for opportunities to help us learn how to live outside of our own personal imprisonments. That's why I love in that verse that he calls it a preparatory state. 
within two verses, he's changed his tune from the probationary word to the preparatory word. I call that improvement. He will say similar things later on in his ministry. In Alma 42, when he's teaching this wayward son, Corianton, Alma 42.10, he says, this probationary state became a state for them to prepare. It became a preparatory state. So in that one verse, he's shifted it from probationary to preparatory. Later in 42, verse 13, he says that the plan of redemption would be brought about on conditions of repentance of men in this probationary state. Yea, this preparatory state. So three times in a row, he's corrected himself. He's clarified his position. Yes, in a way you could say it's probation. But it's far truer to say, and far more hopeful, to say it is preparation that we're here for. Do we sense the difference between probationary and preparatory? Even on the level of our own personal feelings about what this life consists of. I hope that that shift helps correct some of the toxic perfectionism that many of us struggle with. Of thinking, I'll never measure up. I'll never be good enough. It's like life with a, a police tracking anklet on. Talk about counting your steps on the Sabbath, right? Have I gone beyond the prearranged radius where I have to remain inside? Talk about spending your life walking on eggshells, trying out for a team, worried that any mistake I make and I'll be drummed out of this thing, as opposed to a coach or a conductor, or a director, or a boss, any of those things that makes it clear to you, this is not probation at all. You're in. You're one of us. We want you. You're on the team. Let's just prepare together. Let's practice. Let's drill. Let's rehearse. Let's master this. Those were my favorite professors throughout college and graduate school. The ones that you could tell weren't here as probation officers but as preparation officers. Forget officers altogether. They were here to help me become. Such a different feeling once we've made that shift of vocabulary. So to summarize again, from what Alma is teaching Antiona and the people of Ammonihah, we didn't come to be tested. We came to learn. It's not about passing. It's about preparing. It's not about retribution. It's about reconciliation. It's not about writing down the right answers. It's about developing the right reflexes. It's who we are, not something we just crammed and then memory flushed. It's not about making the team. It's about loving the game that we're permitted to play. That is mortality in the preparatory state made meaningful by death and resurrection, fall and redemption, space between eating the fruit of knowledge and the fruit of life. That's why God did not make it fruit salad from the start. There had to be time to learn from the aftertaste of the forbidden fruit before enjoying the sweet above all that is sweet, most delicious above any other fruit, the fruit from the tree of life. There's no aftertaste to that one. That is eternal taste, never ending. 
That is how Alma is answering Antiona's question. In verse 27, to go back more clearly to what Antiona had asked, it was appointed unto men that they must die. Yes, cherubim and the flaming sword served their purpose. And after death, they must come to judgment. That's what resurrection promises. That's what it guarantees. That's why it's so essential what Amulek and I have been teaching. That same judgment of which we have spoken, which is the end. Now, for the rest of this chapter, as Alma finishes this part of his discourse, he is giving us a big picture understanding of how agency in the plan of salvation, again, what makes this a preparatory state to begin with, the need to partake of, that's why both fruits were essential. In some ways, Antiona's question is the same one that we often grapple with when we study the fall, that we, it seems like contradictory commandments, the kind that Zeezrom is trying to make God guilty of, the kinds of contradictions he's trying to invent in order to trap Amulek. Well, God didn't trap himself, and he certainly didn't trap Adam and Eve. This was not contradictory commands. This was two different fruit, both of which were essential to salvation. There had to be one fruit to start the clock ticking, to give them time to prepare to meet God, to learn. You're now enrolled in the school of life, and there needed to be another fruit to end it, to finally graduate and return to God's presence like him because of all that we learned in the intervening time. This is what agency is all about. Choice and consequence, time to learn and grow. This was the plan of salvation laid out from the beginning of the world. Now, the other place to study this, it might even be easier in this other place, is 2 Nephi chapter 2. We already went there to see what Lehi said, that if there had been no eating of the first fruit, then nothing would have changed, and what was the point of anything? But in 2 Nephi 2, it's probably the greatest place anywhere in the standard works to understand what agency is all about. Lehi's teaching to his sons there is incredible. And what I love about it is he spells out the elements of agency. You see, agency is more than just, oh, you get to choose. There's so many components, so many ingredients that go into the recipe for what agency really entails. And Lehi spells them all out beautifully. I'll try to do this briefly and use the analogy of, of learning, of education, of testing even, to try to help us wrap our brains around it. So here's the list from 2 Nephi chapter 2. I'm not going to put them in chronological order according to 2 Nephi 2. I'm going to try to put them in what I consider logical order. 2 Nephi 2.16 the Lord, here's the first, the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. So there has to be an ability, a power within us to actually make choices, to act rather than just to be acted upon, which is another phrase that Lehi uses often in this chapter. In our test-taking analogy, that's our number two pencil. We have to have something, a power to act, to make decisions. I want A or C or B or D. Now in verse 11 is that famous phrase, where he says there must needs be an opposition in all things. Now, this is not opposition like trials and adversity. This is opposition as in choices. We have to be able to choose between wickedness or holiness or misery or good or bad. Otherwise, everything's a compound in one. If there's only one answer on the multiple choice test, if there's only one column down the scantron, then that's not a test at all, and we haven't learned a thing. So for real agency, yes, we have to be able to make choices. There's the number two pencil. But there has to be choices to make. That's the multiple choices on the multiple choice test. There has to be opposition in all things. Now back to verse 16 at the end, 
He also says that man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. Again, it's not really learning if, yes, okay, fine, we'll give you the power to act. There's your number two pencil. We'll even put choices down. But since we want everybody to pass without having to actually learn anything, we're going to make the other choices so obviously incorrect that it's a no-brainer what the right answer happens to be. You've probably had tests where some of the answers are like that. I've seen over the years that often with tests, if there's four possible answers, there's the right one. There's one that's totally obviously wrong. But then often there's one or two in the middle that you're like, ah, that looks pretty, it might be. And that's so important to really see the nuance. Can you really spot the right answer here? In other words, there have to be a, a wrong answer or two that are enticing to us. Only then can we really see, I do discern the right answer. I can tell the real from the counterfeit, even when it's a close counterfeit. So enticement is essential. That's a well-written wrong answer. Verse 5 says that the law is given unto men. So there has to be law. There has to be a right answer. There needs to be an answer key. It's like, yeah, you have your number two pencil. You can, you can choose which one you're going to put down. There are multiple choices, A, B, C, and D. D is totally off the wall, but A and B look really close to C, and they all seem pretty enticing to me. But C is the right answer. There is an absolute truth. It's not just relative like, well, which one do you like? There is law determining what the right answer really was. And in the same verse, even preceding that, it says that men are instructed sufficiently that they know good from evil. In other words, the test needs to be preceded by the class. We need to be able to recognize the right answer when we see it. And that's based on the instruction that we receive going into it. Remember, we're not here to be tested. We're here to learn. So the instruction is essential. The test is just to see how well have we paid attention to that instruction. Jumping ahead to verse 10, it says at the end that there was a punishment affixed, which is in opposition to the happiness which is affixed. In other words, there's a consequence to the choices that we make. There's a pass or there's a fail. There's a grade here. Otherwise, like the verse we saw earlier in verse 22, otherwise everything would have remained in the same state as before. And what was the point of the test to begin with? Finally, or at least what I thought was final for all the years that I've studied 2 Nephi 2, is verse 6, that redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah, who is full of grace and truth. There has to be an eraser on the end of our number two pencil. Because none of us have mastered the material to the point of perfection. And it's perfection that God wants us to eventually achieve. Perfected in Christ. That's a lot of erasing. In fact, forget the eraser at the end of the number two pencil. You're going to need to be have, have one of those separate kind of pink ones that you just hold because you're going to be going through a lot of them. See, the enticement was real. There really were other answers that seemed so convincing at the time, especially when the natural man is so quick to become our tutor. So again, to review Lehi's incredible lesson about agency, what are the ingredients, the essential elements of agency? The power to act, that's our number two pencil. Choices, those are the multiple choices on the test. Enticement, well-written wrong answers. Law, the right answer, the answer key. Instruction, 
class leading up to the test, test review, all the tutoring sessions that we receive. Consequences, a final grade, pass, fail, ABC, and finally, redemption, an eraser, so that we can change the answers that we've gotten wrong, continue our instruction, and prepare ourselves better. Well, like I said, I thought that was it. But Alma helped me see one more essential ingredient to Lehi's list. And in fact, I should have seen it in Lehi's list all along because it's there. Alma just brings it out more because that was the focus of Antiona's question and Amulek's discourse on the resurrection. In Lehi's version, it comes up in verse 21 where he says, The days of the children of men were prolonged. Can you sense the gap growing between the eating of these two fruits? The promise of death, marking one, and the promise of resurrection and judgment, establishing the other? The days of the children of men were prolonged, according to the will of God, right? This was the plan laid from before the foundation of the world. Why was it there? That they might repent while in the flesh. It's all the in-the-flesh preparation that needs to take place before that corruptible flesh becomes incorruptible, before mortal life becomes post-mortal life, or before mortality becomes immortality. Therefore, their state became a state of probation, or as Alma would correct himself, preparation. And their time was lengthened. That's why they couldn't eat the fruit, the second fruit, at that time. They would have lived forever in their sins. We want the live forever part. We don't want the in their sins part. So there needs to be time for us to wean ourselves off those sins, to overcome them, to prepare ourselves for a life without sin or sinfulness eternally. Their time was lengthened according to the commandments which the Lord God gave unto the children of men. For he gave commandment that all men must repent. For he showed unto all men they were lost because of the transgression of their parents. That's why the fall was passed down to each of us. Not in some sort of original sin kind of guilt, but rather life in a fallen world. It wasn't original sin that we're grappling with. It was original separation. The two deaths that Adam and Eve brought into the world both of which would be overcome through the atonement of Christ with resurrection and judgment. But then once they leave the witness stand, like I said, it's on us. And have we prepared? Have we used the time that their separation gave us to learn how to live in a way that we would never again be separated from God? Have we used the gap in time to convince us of our desire to close the gap in space between us and our Father in heaven. That's what the fall was for. And I hope we are using our time wisely. That is the eighth ingredient that Lehi lists. There has to be time. Back to our analogy of college, there needs to be a clock on the wall in the testing center. There needs to be a deadline to turn in that final paper. There needs to be an end of semester. So we actually work on the preparation that we were supposed to be doing all semester long. Yes, the time is prolonged. The time is lengthened. But it has to have a deadline, a death line. Otherwise, human nature, 
we're going to procrastinate to the very last minute. Well, at least there's a last minute that eventually will cure us of our natural procrastinations. There has to be death and then a resurrection. Again, that's what Alma is teaching there in chapter 12. If you pick up where we left off in verse 28, from there to the end of the chapter, it's almost like Alma is giving us his version of Lehi's incredible lesson. Now, the first three elements, the power to act, the choices that we make, the enticements that pull us in both directions, that's all kind of inherent in what he said thus far. Back in verse 22, where he said that Adam did fall by the partaking of the forbidden fruit, that seems to summarize Adam had the power to act. He had a choice here. There was different kinds of fruits. There was enticement. This one was forbidden, but he ended up choosing it anyway. That's all there. But then go back to verse 28. After God had appointed that these things should come unto man, behold, then he saw that it was expedient that man should know concerning the things whereof he had appointed unto them. This is the instruction period that Lehi talked about. This is class. This is test review. This is everything we've been doing all semester long. Verse 29, he sent angels to converse with them who caused men to behold of his glory. Verse 30, they began to call on God's name. God conversed with men. He made known unto them the plan of redemption, which had been prepared from the foundation of the world. God fills this probationary state with all the preparation we could possibly ask for. He's a good instructor, and his semester is filled with opportunities to learn. These things he made known unto them according to their faith and repentance and their holy works. That kind of ties back into this condition of the heart. You want to learn more of God's mysteries? Then soften your heart. Exercise faith and repent and engage in holy work. And the softening of heart that results, you will continue to learn and grow. You'll have access to a God who wants to converse with you. You will understand on a deeper level the plan of redemption. You will know God's mysteries until you know them in full. No chains for you. Verse 31, he gave commandments unto men. This is where the law starts coming in. There is an answer key. There is a right answer. And you should know it by now based on all this instruction. He gave commandments unto men, they having first transgressed the first commandments as to the things which were temporal, and thus becoming as gods. They knew good from evil. They placed themselves in a state to act, or being placed in a state to act according to their wills and pleasures, whether to do evil or to do good. So again, there's that power to act that Lehi describes. There's that multiple choices, good or evil. There's that enticement. They're being pulled in both directions. Verse 32, God gave unto them commandments, so there's the law again, after having made known unto them the plan of redemption. There's the instruction. And again, I love the order. Alma puts it in the same order that Lehi did, that men are instructed sufficiently to know, and then and the law is given unto men. I love that the Lord does this. As parents, as teachers, as leaders, we need to get that order better ourselves. Because so often we just hammer our youth or our children or our students with commandments, 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 and they don't see them in the context of the plan. We tell them what to do and tell them how to live, but we don't explain very well or very early why 
we're supposed to do all those things. How do they fit into the plan? How do they help us fit ourselves into the plan of salvation? That's why post-tests are typically graded rather than pre-tests. We're graded on what we've learned. We keep commandments because we understand the plan of salvation. It's been made known to us. We've been taught that we should not do evil. We've been taught that the penalty thereof is a second death, just as Alma explained previously. We've been taught that there's an everlasting death as to things pertaining unto righteousness. Talk about final consequences of our decisions, right? Without those consequences, then the plan of redemption has no power because the works of justice are destroyed according to the supreme goodness of God. Amazing that his justice is an outgrowth of his goodness, not an exception to it. So there's the consequences. Verse 33 then, here is redemption. God did call on men in the name of his son, this being the plan of redemption which was laid. And what did God say to men through the son? That if you will repent and harden not your hearts, then will I have mercy upon you through mine only begotten Son. That's the good news they've been teaching all along. And it has to do with repentance, which typically comes only through a softened heart. Which portion of the word are we receiving? Therefore, verse 34, Whosoever repenteth and hardeneth not his heart, he shall have claim on mercy through mine only begotten Son unto remission of his sins, and these shall enter into my rest. What a powerful phrase. To have claim on mercy. Claim seems to be like it's our right. Well, justice makes it that way. He just talked about the justice of God growing out of his goodness in 32. Well, here you see the two come together beautifully in 34. To have claim on mercy through mine only begotten son. The mercy is obvious. It's right there. But our claim on that mercy is God's justice. He's the one that set out the plan. He's the one that gave us choice and consequence. And the choice to repent brings the consequence of forgiveness. That's the promise he's made to us. And we can have a claim on that mercy. Not because we've earned it, but because we've begged for it. We've asked for it. We've repented of our sins. We've turned to him unprofitable servants as we are, but made claim to the mercy that he has promised us. Softened hearts get that. Softened hearts seek that. Whereas 35 hardened hearts continue in their iniquity and are told, sadly, that they cannot enter into God's rest. They just wouldn't come. And God will force no man to heaven. So in 36, my brethren, behold, I say unto you, if ye will not harden your hearts. That's been our message this entire block of scripture. Ye shall not enter into the rest of the Lord. Therefore your iniquity provoketh him. Ye shall not enter into the rest of the Lord. Not because you failed your probation, but because you didn't use your time of preparation. It's almost less that you're not worthy of it, but that you're not ready for it. You're not ready to play in the game. You're not ready to perform on the stage. You're not ready to act in this office. 
And being thrust into those positions would be the last thing that you want. You cannot enter into my rest because it would not be restful for you. So he continues, your iniquity provoketh him that he sendeth down his wrath upon you as in the first provocation. Well, there's an interesting P word. Forget probation versus preparation. How about provocation? To provoke God. That's a phrase that's appeared elsewhere in Scripture too, and it typically refers to the Israelites in their exodus from Egypt and their frequent murmurings, provoking God. Him saying, cross the Jordan and take the promised land. I'll even stop the waters for you. But that prior generation saying, whoa, the people in there are too big for us. We can't handle it. And God says, fine, then wander, wander, die, wander, die. And 40 years from now, your children will grow up and cross the Jordan River on dry ground and beat the city of Jericho with the marching band. It's not as hard as you think. I'm on your side after all. No? Okay. Then your provocation of me shows your lack of preparation yourselves. And you cannot enter into my rest. You wouldn't let yourself. That's the way that we provoke God. By not accepting the preparation he is offering. That's the view of the promised land that Alma sees standing on the shoulders of his companion Amulek. That's the view of the promised land that he's trying to give to Antiona and to Zeezrom and to the people of Ammonihah. That's the view of the promised land across the Jordan. Just go in. You have time to prepare. This is the use of agency that God has always intended for you. So choose and choose life. Choose wisely. Death and the promise of resurrection and judgment forces the issue upon all of us. We have to choose, and we need to choose wisely. We can choose wisely, and we can repent of the times that we have not. That's why Jesus came. He provides the eternal eraser. He washes our feet clean. There's not a smudge left on that scantron marking the places where we chose some other enticing answer that sadly was incorrect. All of this is what Alma teaches us here. Every element that Lehi listed. Alma's number two pencil, God placed us in a state to act. Alma's multiple choices, there they are, good and evil, according to your will and pleasure. There's Alma's enticement, they do get pulled to the forbidden fruit. We all do. There is Alma's law. He gave unto them commandments. There is Alma's instruction. It was expedient that man should know concerning these things. There was Alma's consequences. Penalties of the second death versus entering into God's rest. There is Alma's eraser. The redemption that cometh through the Son of God the repentance that is offered to any who harden not their hearts to have claim on the mercy of God's only begotten Son. And throughout this chapter, the main point of this chapter and the main point of what Amulek said in the chapter before is time. The clock ticking on the wall that both Amulek and Alma see so clearly that they're trying to introduce to the people of Ammonihah. 
prolonged, lengthened time, in Lehi's words. Or in Alma's words, a space granted, a gap opened up, a space granted unto man in which he might repent. The purpose of life is not to be tested. It's to repent. It's to prepare to meet God. It's to learn to be like him. It's preparation, not probation. But the semester can only last so long. There is a haunting caution in Joseph Smith Matthew, where it talks about the last days and all these difficult signs of the times, the type that have the potential to deceive even the very elect according to the covenant. And the Lord warns there that unless those days are shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. That's scary to me. If God doesn't speed things up and call it over, no one's going to make it. There shall no flesh be saved. You've probably seen that in the duration of your lifetime, as long or as short as it might be. Things are getting quicker. Things are moving faster. Wickedness is increasing in strength, as is righteousness. Polarization is taking place in both Zion and Babylon. But that haunting warning, if I don't call it quits soon, if we don't end the semester, it's only getting harder and harder to prepare well. Incorrect answers are becoming so enticing, thrust right in front of us on every screen, made to seem so correct, even when they aren't, that if we don't hurry up and take the test and prove what we've learned and prepared with, then I'm afraid that we might not have anybody pass this class. So when here the Lord talks about giving us a space to repent, that's good news. But the way Lehi said it, of the time being prolonged, of the time being lengthened, you understand the position that puts God in? If those days aren't shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. But I need to prolong those days to give people time to repent. Too little time, will anyone be able to repent? But too long, too much time, will anybody want to? We force God to prolong our days even more beyond what he would feel comfortable with each time we procrastinate the day of our repentance. We're shooting ourselves in the foot because requiring more time to repent on our part is simply giving the adversary more time to make that repentance less likely. No wonder God is hastening his work in his time. He's trying to shorten those days. We need to shorten the distance between our sin and our repentance. We need to prepare well. That's the purpose of this time that we've been granted. Filled with grace on his end. We need to fill it with repentance on our own. So Alma ends this chapter, not his discourse. It will pick up next week with chapter 13, which is incredible as well. Alma and Amulek, what a team. What they'll walk us through doctrinally and experientially next week is life-changing. But to end things today, verse 37, Alma says, My brethren, he keeps calling them, even in their wickedness, by that title, My brethren. Seeing we know these things, notice all the inclusive first-person plural pronouns. It's not, you ought to know this, 
Amulek knew but would not know. You know but would not know. No, we all know these things. He's bringing them in. He's not in some kind of adversarial stance. Satan is their adversary, just like his. That makes friends of the two of us, right, Zeezrom, right, Antiona, right, people of Ammonihah. We know these things. I'm on your side. I hope you'll be on mine. You know who does this beautifully is President Irene. I'm amazed at how gently he beckons us to repent. And he so often does it by talking about we and us. He just gives us the benefit of the doubt. In so many of his talks, he'll just say things like, and then we'll do this, and then we'll do that. Or you'll do this and you'll feel this. And I, and I just feel myself being drawn into that invitation like, yeah, I will. I will do that. I, and I will become this. And yeah, we will do these things together, President Irene. I love how he does that. Well, here Alma is doing likewise. We know these things, you and I. They're true. How could we not know them? So let us repent. I've been doing that ever since I met an angel. Well, Two earthly angels have been among you today, commissioned by two heavenly angels a little bit earlier. That's what put this companionship together. So let us repent and harden not our hearts. It's that heart that we've been after aiming at this entire time. Will yours be hard to the point of receiving the lesser portion until you know nothing? Or will yours be soft so that you can receive the greater portion until you know God's mysteries in full. If we harden not our hearts, that we provoke not the Lord our God to pull down his wrath upon us in these his second commandments, which he has given unto us, if we can just avoid that, if we can repent, then what's the promise that he has made to us? He will let us enter into the rest of God, which is prepared according to his word. That was his promise from the very beginning. My beloved brethren and sisters, for you are my brothers and sisters, and you ought to be beloved. May we repent and lay claim to the mercy that God has put in place in the person of his only begotten Son. May we soften our hearts to open ourselves to the greater portion of the Word, and the Word is Christ, to open ourselves to more of him, to fill this gap, this time, this mortal life with experiences that introduce us to him, so that when the resurrection which is promised to all, brings us back into his presence, judgment becomes good news instead of bad news. That there is no second spiritual death, having just overcome the first. I testify of the truth of these things. I am grateful for a loving God who has laid this all out from the beginning, granted us every essential element of agency and instructed us sufficiently to fill this preparatory time with the repentance that is required. Thank you for filling your time today with this study of the Book of Mormon. I pray that you've felt its power, that you received the greater portion of the word today.
Which version of this message did you receive? Hopefully the one sounding on a higher frequency. Until next week, may you fill the time that God has given us with faith and repentance and the goodness of God.